Mi gente. You know, each week I drink a different wine and give you my honest opinion of what I think and try and give you more backstory on them. So when I got the wines from Cesoles Wine Company, I was really excited to try them because the owner of the label is a first-generation Mexican-American and he has created these blends based on people in his life who he loves. So from the rosé, for those with a sweet palate, to the depth of the Chianti-like red blend, Cesoles wines are all reasonably priced. They're all under $20 with the exception of one of the red wines. And they are all beautiful on the tongue. So not only will you not have to spend a lot, you're going to get a great quality of wine. So although the rosé is a bit sweet for me, the white blend I absolutely love and is perfect for a hot summer day. So head over to their website, which is the number six, soles, S-O-L-E-S dot com. And guess what? They are giving the listeners of the Wine and Cheese Made podcast an extra 30, yes, I said 30% off. So if you go to their website and order at checkout, just enter wine and cheese and you will get your discount. Let me know what you think of them. And thank you, Cesoles Wines, for sponsoring this episode of the Wine and Cheese podcast. All right. When I decided to interview Dr. Patel and talk about CBD, I must admit that I had tried it before but didn't really know what I was doing and never really felt like it worked. And when you are in as much pain as I'm in every single month, all you wanted to do is go away by any means necessary. So when I got my first bottle of Doc Patel's CBD oil, I was a little bit skeptical to be perfectly honest. Mejente, when I tell you it made the debilitating cramps that I get every single month more manageable for me, that is nothing short of a miracle. And the thing that makes all of this cooler is the fact that Doc Patel's allows you to have a one-on-one consultation with Dr. Patel herself so you can discuss what you're looking for and have an actual doctor help you determine what product and what dosage is right for you. And for my Wine and Cheese Made listeners, they're offering an extra 5% off whether there is a sale or not. All you have to do is enter Wine and Cheese at checkout, and there you go. You get your discount. So let me know if you decide to get it and how it works for you. Hola, mi gente. Welcome to another episode of the Wine and Cheese podcast a podcast created to amplify voices and share the stories of people from marginalized and communities of color doing remarkable things, all while sipping on a glass of wine. I'm your host, Jessica Yengis. This week, my guest is Dr. Rashna Patel. Dr. Patel is a first-generation South Asian Indian emergency room doctor turned entrepreneur and a world-recognized expert in the field of cannabinoid medicine. Since 2012, her consultations have helped people relieve their symptoms, transform their health, and live a better quality of life. People have walked away from her consultations with a clear understanding of how to use CBD products, what to expect when using CBD products, while also dispelling fears people have about CBD products and putting their minds at ease. She's helped people from many different countries manage a wide range of medical conditions, including anxiety, chronic pain, insomnia, and more. 
With Doc Patel's, Dr. Patel's aim is to put medical grade CBD products in the hands of licensed healthcare professionals trained by Dr. Patel herself. In an industry full of misinformation and questionable products, it's about time. So grab your glass of wine and join us for the chisme. Dr. Rasha, am I saying that right? Rasha Patel? Rashna Patel. Okay. Yay. I'm so excited to have you here and to talk about CBD because I think it's such, it's one of those things that a lot of people have heard about. Some people know a little bit about, but to have somebody who has really been doing it for a long time and really has studied it and, and everything, I'm super excited. So thank you for joining me. How are you today? I am doing very well. Well, I, we start out, this is obviously called the Wine and Podcast. So before we get too much into the chisme, <laughs> got to get to the wine. And today I am drinking, it's actually a brand new label called Seis Soles Wine. And it's like the Six Suns and it's from Lido, California. And it is a blend. It's their rosé blend. And it's a blend of 86% Grenache and 14%, I'm going to try and say this correctly, Morveder, which is, so I don't know, it's, I don't know if I said that right, but I tried it, I tried. And the thing, I was looking at what Grenache and Morveder was, Grenache, it says, has a candied fruit roll-up and cinnamon flavors. <clears throat> and the Morverde has a blackberry, licorice, and pepper flavors. So, I'm going to taste it. Sounds like a sweet wine. It is. It is. And I'm not normally a sweet wine person. <laughs> it's actually not as sweet as you would think. And I think it's because I let it kind of sit for a little bit. It wasn't too cold because I've been told, like, if, it's, if you do a white or rosé and it's really, really cold, it messes with the flavor. So, you have to let it sit a little bit before you take a drink. And I did that versus what I did the other day when I tasted it, and it actually tastes better. Ooh. So okay, I'm gonna, good tip. Yeah, so quick to quick wine tips. <laughs> but now we can get into the chisme, which is Spanish for gossip. I'm not sure if you knew that or not. So we like to, you know, sip and gossip, wine and gossip. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you are a South Asian Indian woman. Can you tell me, are you, are you first generation or you, are you multiple generations here? What brought your family to the United States in the first place? Yeah, so I never really get the generations right, but basically my parents were born in the homeland and I was born here in Jersey. You were the first generation <clears throat> here. That's what I said. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah, so that's how I define it too. But I know some people define it differently, like the first generation to come to America. But first generation born in America... Um, and of South Asian descent, um, and uh, grew up in a, in a city called Jersey City, New Jersey. Um, and uh, uh, what else? It was, it was a, you know, sort of a, a typical immigrant story. 
my parents came to America not speaking a lick of English. Uh, we grew up in a, a low-income immigrant neighborhood, which was great because it was so diverse. There was like the Filipino neighborhood, and then there was like the Egyptian neighborhood, and and then we all came together in school, you know. And so, it never. I mean, I know a lot of a lot of South Asian kids that grew up in all white communities, and to them, it was such a being uh, South Asian, being Indian was so uh, at the top of their minds. And for me, that was never the case because I grew up with so many people that were different that race was just never at the top of my mind, which, which was a blessing because I, now when I, when I meet people, that's not the first thing that I, that I see about them. You know, the first thing I'm looking for is character. So I think that really helped to shape that, that part of me in terms of, you know, when I'm meeting people. I love hearing that. And I think that's so often when you're in, you know, a, a low income community, immigrant community, that it tends to be a lot of just, even if it might be like one block is predominantly this or one, but you're still in the same kind of neighborhood and you go to school together. It's so important that we're able to see different reflections of who we are as people just in everyday life, because how many people go to school for the first time, or actually as adults, meet somebody of a different race or ethnicity for the first time ever, even now in this day. Yeah, yeah. So the funny thing was when I was training for residency in Erie, Pennsylvania. So Erie, Pennsylvania, for those who don't know, is close to the Ohio border. So it's in Pennsylvania, north, it would basically be the complete opposite of where Philadelphia is. Philadelphia is southeast, so Erie, Pennsylvania is north, northwest. and you know, people in that town, they usually didn't, uh, ex- you know, venture outside of a, a four mile driving, not even a four mile, a four hour uh, uh, driving radius. And so I remember there was this one patient that I saw in the ER who asked me if I was Filipino. And I was like, I think you have your Browns confused. <laughs> <laughs> I think you have your Browns confused. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But, um, but yeah, it's, 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 it's interesting growing up as a minority. What was your parents' career background in India versus when they moved to the United States? Oh, so they moved to America in their early 20s. So they didn't really have much of a career. I mean, my father um, comes, my whole, my whole, all of my dad's side is entrepreneurial. So they had a lot of businesses. They had gas stations. Uh, my father ran the ration shop. They had, there was a, a ration shop. I, I don't know the, the context of how it came about to be, but <clears throat> he handled that business. My mother um, was raised to be a wife uh, and a mother by, by her mom. And so she studied home ec- economics in college. That was actually a major. Oh my gosh. Yeah, exactly. Um, Can you imagine if that was a major now? I think it was in the 1950s in America. Oh, I'm sure. Sh- I'm sure it was. Yeah, I can't imagine that being. I mean, just because that encompasses and believe my mom was a stay-at-home mom, and that I can't imagine doing that job. I'm not gonna lie. That is so hard. I don't know if I have the patience to do <laughs> to do yeah. that. Yeah, but there is so much, like so much that would go into it. I would think even nowadays, instead of. Like in the 50s, I would imagine it's like cooking and cleaning and tending to the kids. But now there's so much more. I mean, how many yeah. women are the actual accountants of their household? And they're the, they're basically project managers. Let's just be, you know, they are yeah. 
of their house, of their household. Yeah, absolutely. And then, so when they came to America, they started off working uh, minimum wage jobs. Uh, My dad worked as a cashier at a um, pharmacy. I don't know if you've heard of Dwayne Reed out east. Yes, it was acquired by Rite Aid. And uh, my mom, so until I was five, she didn't work. She, you know, she stayed home and took care of uh, me and my brother. And then she worked at a factory for many, many years past that. So yeah, that's how they started. And eventually my father um, started his, his own business. You know, he, um, he was uh, in New York City. So he was working in New York City as a cashier at the, at the Dwayne Reed. And then he started his own businesses, which were mainly convenience stores, right? And in New York, in New York City specifically, they come in the form of newsstands. So, so that's, that's what he ended up doing, convenience stores and newsstands throughout New York City. Oh, wow. Like growing up, I mean, this is kind of a little bit of a two-parter. What were your parents' expectation of you kind of growing up? Did they have an idea of what they wanted to do? Is that like what they wanted you to do, excuse me? And what were your, did that coincide with what your interests were when you were in school? Yeah, so I come from an Indian household, right? So academics are the center of your universe when you're a child, right? And so doing well academically was always emphasized. It was, it was the end all be all. And, you know, fortunately I, I was a nerd. And so (laughs) (laughs) it it kind of melded well together. Uh, For me, I didn't become a quote unquote rebel until much later on in life, which we'll get into. But yeah, so that, that was pretty much it. You know, typical Indian household, they didn't encourage me to be a doctor, believe it or not. Typically in most Indian households, uh, the stereotype is, is that the first one child's Right. What? I said, would it be like engineer or something? Yeah. A doctor, engineer, or what's the other one? It, it's not lawyer. It's doctor, engineer, or like dentist or something like that. You know, something medical. Um, it's a, so quote unquote, you know, a, a secure field. Um, uh, but now, you know, given the pandemic, we know that those fields aren't necessarily secure. So, uh, so yeah, that was, that was our life growing up, you know, a lot of emphasis on academics, um, not a lot of sports. I was usually the last one picked on teams (laughs) in gym class. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, so that, that was, that was pretty much life. What were your interests, like, academically when you were in school, was there something that really pulled you more than anything? Or was it always, were you always just kind of a science brain? You knew that you were going to be pulled into that direction, even if you didn't know exactly what that was in high school. I love science. I loved science fairs. I mean, I was like nerd of nerds. Okay. So I mean, (laughs) for, for science fairs every year. And then later on in high school, I gave up my lunch just so I could like work on my science fair project. And this wasn't even required. Okay. This is something like extracurricular that I just did. And you know, honestly, I'm going to be honest with you. And this is what a lot of fellow nerds say as well. Looking back, it's like, why do we do that to ourselves? Like, was that all worth it? Giving up like our entire childhood when we could have been like digging around you know, just like living a carefree life. Yeah. So, so it's, you know, give and take, but yeah, that's what I live for is, is science fairs. <laughs> I'm really glad that you said that, that you look back and you wish you would have been more of a, a kid, so to speak, right? Instead of mm-hmm. just, I think so many parents even 
and their kid, like there's so much pressure being a kid these days. You have so many responsibilities and so many things. It's almost like there isn't time to be a kid. Why do we need to, you know, like, yeah, if you have a child that's very into it, that's cool, but encourage <clears throat> do other things because you have your whole life to be an adult. Like you're an adult way longer than you're a kid. Yep. And I wish, I wish I would appreciate it even more when I was a child, like, hey, I'm a kid. I can make mistakes. I can be silly. I can be whatever. Yeah. And believe me, I am definitely still silly and goofy and all of those things, but it's in a different context than when you're a kid. Yeah. You, you know, I think there, there's this whole movement of parenting um, that I just recently discovered. I'm not a parent myself, but I discovered there's this whole, there's a lot of parents raising their kids centered around growth mindset like teaching your child that mistakes are okay and, you know, uh, knowing how to learn from those mistakes, you know, raising, like raising a child that, that mentally is healthy, I think is the most important thing. Absolutely. Um, Especially than, right now you have to have, you yeah. know, to be able to have a healthy mindset. I mean, believe me, people should be doing their crying or their whatever they need to do to kind of flush their emotions and their systems. Cause we're in a very odd time right now. And, I think in Cal, at least in San Diego, we might be approaching the end-ish of that. Like, yeah, yeah, a little bit closer. But to ha- I think that's such a a rad to give to let's bring a throwback word, a really rad concept. <laughs> <laughs> that kid, that parents are really mindful of the mindset of their kids. And I think also there's a lot of development that goes on socially as well. You can make a lot, you know, as a child, you have the freedom to make a lot of mistakes socially and kids should be encouraged to make these, these mistakes socially, right? That's where, where the confidence and the self-esteem builds from making those mistakes. So yeah, just looking back on my childhood, some of the things that, uh, what, what, you know, it was a great childhood. I had, I had a really great childhood. You know, I had, I had, especially growing up in like a low-income immigrant uh, community. I mean, I was grateful that I had two parents. They weren't drug addicts. They they were able to put food on the table. We we were you know where we lived in our apartment. At least I felt safe. Um, so you know, little things like that. I grew up, um, and this wasn't until in retrospect that I was grateful for it. In fact, I became very grateful for it when, at the age of twelve, I moved to an affluent white community because this is where the the best, we, where people had access to the best schools. So my parents, by that time, saved up enough to, to buy a tiny little house in this um, uh, really affluent community. It wasn't the nicest of, of homes, but it got us in the right zip code. And granted, we had like the train tracks running through our backyard um, and then like, like uh, electrical uh, ha- uh, towers on both sides of us. But it got, it got us access to some of the best schools. And gosh, these kids that I was around, like this was wealth that I had never encountered in my life before. And so it was definitely a culture shock, right? Coming from a community that I had to come from. And, you know, it was a difficult adjustment. But by the time I turned 18, there was a lot I look back on. That was a lot to go through at that young of an age, that sort of transition and to almost be slapped by the reality of the world, you know, that there, there are the haves and there's the have nots. But I also gained a lot from it too, that there's a lot of things in life that come for free, like 
you know, your, your family's love, your, uh, your, well, your family in and of itself, motivation, perseverance, you know, all of that, all of that comes for free. A lot of what makes us happy in life comes for free, right? You just have to, to understand that, that it's all already there for you. Right. So, um, uh, so yeah, that was, that was quite a journey as well uh, at a very young age. But yeah, I'm not sure where I was going, but uh, <laughs> it's okay. That was, it's that's okay. the next, next part of journey. <laughs> so uh, you decided to go to Northwestern University for your yeah. undergrad. What was that? At what point did you know? Was it in high school or was it in that period when you were at Northwestern? Did you know you wanted to be a doctor? Well, you know, it's interesting. When I was in kindergarten, my parents always remind me of this. I remember for our graduation, the teacher went around asking, what do you want to be when you grow up? And I, without hesitation, said a doctor, and then she prepared a speech for us to recite. So we had to memorize it and give the speech. And what's crazy is that the speech was about how I don't want to be the type of doctor that fixes broken bones, but it was something about, so I'm that line I remember, but it was something about, you know, just... I don't, I don't remember, but it wasn't about, it wasn't about becoming a surgeon or, 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 you know, like fixing things in the literal sense. Right. Um, But it was, you know, something about impacting lives or something like that. And over the years, even today, that is still my purpose is that I want to impact lives and I've always wanted to do it through medicine. So yeah, that was something I had never wavered on in terms of what I wanted to do. Plus I had the strength in science. Um, I was very interested in the human body. I, I remember dragging my parents. So I'm gonna, in, <laughs> by the end of this, you're gonna be like, oh my God, I feel so bit, like sorry for her childhood. <laughs> no, no, it's so funny you say that though, because my sister, my youngest sister, um, when she was, when we were younger, she always said she wanted to be a doctor too. Mm-hmm. And I think at some point she, she's always stayed within the medical field. She's actually a nurse practitioner. Mm-hmm. She works in the ICU of, of the hospital. So she's kind of in the middle of all of this COVID-19 yeah. stuff. But her, like it never wavered. It might have, well, it, in regards to the medical field, she knew she wanted, at first she wasn't sure she wanted to do physical therapy because she was a she was a softball player. She played sports and everything. So she wasn't sure if she wanted to do physical therapy. So she did a kind of an internship in that. Um, then when she decided she wanted to be a nurse, she was like, well, if I'm going to be a nurse, I'm going to go all the way that you could go. I'm not yeah. just going to be a nurse. I'm going to be a nurse practitioner. And she loves what she does and she's really good at it. And she's gets, you know, some really, she's had some really wonderful opportunities, but I think sometimes you just know, like for me, I was, I want to be a lawyer. I do kind of a little bit of the, everything that I do involves <clears throat> legal stuff, but I didn't like when I grew up, I was like, I wanted to be a litigator because I like to talk. So this really fits perfectly <laughs> in doing this. <laughs> Yeah, you, yeah, you dragged your parents somewhere. Let me, sorry, let me bring. Oh you yeah, back. to to the library. Um, like I wanted to go to the library almost every weekend. I dragged them there, and then I'd want to be there for hours on end. And they had like stuff to do, you know. And so, um, so they'd have to like drag me out. But like every time I went, I'd pick out a book on uh, the human body, and those were hard to come by because they got checked out a lot. And so, yeah, that's that's what I was always most fascinated by. That's how. So, that's so cool that you knew that from a young age. So you went from Northwestern to 
Toro University, am I pronouncing that yep. correctly? Mm -hmm. uh, where you got your medical degree. Yep. And then you began your career, in, but you actually began your career in emergency medicine. Yep. But did you end up staying in California to do that? Did you go somewhere else to actually start your career in medicine? Yeah. So training was in Erie, Pennsylvania. That's the place where I was, I was telling you about before you started recording where um, a patient had asked me if I was Filipino. That, that was Erie, Pennsylvania. Those were, that was quite an adventure there. So Erie, Pennsylvania uh, was training. And then from there, from there, I went to, uh, back to California. So what happened was that while I was going through training in emergency medicine, so what does an ER doctor do? Well, mainly you see patients who are in pain, right? They, they come in, they say they have uh, headaches, they say they have back pain, they have abdominal pain, whatever sort of pain they have. And our jobs as ER doctors is to rule out an emergent cause. And as long as there's no emergent cause, you send them home on their way with instructions to follow up with their primary care doctor and with a uh, prescription. And typically that prescription was for pain management medications, opioids, to help with their pain. And so given the nature of our healthcare system, though, a lot of these patients would end up coming back into the emergency room and they would say, look, these medications didn't work. I was having side effects from these medications. Or in the worst case of scenarios, I, was, I would end up in the position of having to resuscitate these patients because they overdosed, whether it was intentional or unintentional, on the pain medications, on the opioids. And so, so there I was, and I felt like I was standing at a revolving door. On the one hand, giving out these prescriptions, and on the other hand, you know, having to deal with the, the array of, uh, of the aftermath effects. So, and I didn't feel like I was really making an impact on people's lives, which was always my purpose, right? Through medicine, make an impact on people's lives. So residency's tough, right? I was working about eight and 100 hours a week. And so you get to a point where you're just, you're, you're in this sort of hazy state of mind where you're too tired to do anything productive, but you're too wired to actually sleep. Um, so, you're not, so you're not getting a, a lot of sleep as is, but then on top of that, you're just, your brain is just kind of chaotic. And so a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of that time you spend, you know, surfing the internet, just like any other person who's in that state of mind. And so one night I happened to be on Craigslist. My, my apartment was like very, very like sparsely furnished and I wanted some more pieces and I was on a resident salary. So I was virtually dumpster diving on Craigslist. <laughs> and, and, and I don't I, think people know, like when you're in residency, you're, yes, you're Dr. Patel or you're doc, mm -hmm. you know, but you're not getting paid mm -mm. as if you are, have, you know, like, like people think doctors are paid. Yeah. I mean, you're getting paid in, I know in New York city, there's residents getting paid 60 grand, which is tough to live off of, especially when the rents run anywhere between like upwards of two to four grand, two grand if you're lucky, but up, upwards of four grand a month. So that's a lot of your, your salary. That's just, you know, going away towards you know, living expense. But in any case, yeah, so you're, you're not getting paid a lot, but um, I happened to click on the section that said uh, health, health and medical, just out of curiosity. Um, so I clicked on that section and there was an ad that came up that said medical marijuana doctor needed. And before that night, I had never known that this field even existed or this job even existed. So that piqued my curiosity. Um, and so I started to dig into the research um, and, and also just how this field functioned. 
and I spent a good year digging into the research. I was hanging out on this website called pubmed.gov, and that's where they house a lot of the medical studies that are published both in, in the United States and throughout the world. And believe it or not, there are research studies on the chemicals made by the marijuana plant and by the hemp plant. And by the end of the year, I was like, okay, there is a lot here. And a lot here in the sense that the chemicals that this plant makes has a lot of potential to help, especially with chronic pain, in a way that conventional medications aren't. So at that point, I decided, you know what? I have the book knowledge. I, I want the people knowledge now. So I signed up to work at a medical marijuana clinic in Sacramento, in California. And, and had you finished your residency at this time, or did you stop your residency, or did you cut your residency short? I didn't cut it short, no. So, yeah, so I signed, I signed up to work at a medical marijuana clinic, and, and since then, there's, there's been no turning back. I want to kind of go back to, like, when you were saying you were in medical school and you had the book knowledge, and I think that's where a lot of times there's a disconnect, and I have a lot of physician friends, and they have said that there are certain things that they wish would have been taught in medical school. For you, what do you think, if you went back to medical school and residency, and they said, what can we do better at? What would that thing be that you say, like, this is not taught to us? This is not something, like, it's, I feel like it's so much book, but maybe, yeah. what do you think is missing at that part to help doctors better connect when they have somebody sitting there with them? So a big component of a doctor's job is to do convincing, right? So essentially, if you think about it, we're salespeople. Um, we're, we're, we're trying to sell a certain decision or, um, you know, a, a certain behavior so that um, the, the patient at the end of the day can, can lead a better quality of life. That's a difficult thing to do. And in the past, the approach has been very authoritative. I tell you what to do and you do it. But that's not really how, you know, you go about convincing people. You really have to meet them halfway. You have to understand where they're coming from. And this is great going to an osteopathic medical school because this is something that, that was taught, that you really need to take a lot of factors into consideration because you can tell a patient to do something, but there can be barriers to taking that action. <clears throat> so um, just more soft people skills. Um, I, I think if we were taught that, that would be great. I think also um, a good bedside manner which can often go missing with a, a, a lot of physicians. And so, um, because that in and of itself, you know, when you have good bedside manner, that in and of itself can in, be convincing. That, hey, it can, it can garner a certain sense of trust uh, in the doctor, and that uh, when, you, when you garner that sense of trust, you, you actually want to be like, okay, I think this doctor has my best interest at heart. So I think the, the, and, and those soft people skills are of utmost importance. So you've been working in the CBD space since 2012. Yep. And you've let us know kind of how you started, which I think is so cool. I love how you just were really curious and started doing your own research before you made that. 
how was it? Because technically in California, CBD wasn't approved for use until 2017, but you started working in it in 2012. So in that between the time when you started working in it and by the time it was officially legal, how were you working within that space? Was it mostly research or was it where you were actually working with patients? How did you go about doing that between that period? Yeah, so basically, I was recommending high CBD marijuana-based products uh, through through clinical practice, right? So I was working at a medical marijuana clinic, and I was recommending high CBD-based, so marijuana-based high CBD products. Um, Hemp-based high CBD products came around around that time, around 2012. Um, It was when that documentary came out by Dr. Sanjay Gupta, I forgot what it's called, Mm -hmm. but that had a a very significant impact. So basically you had these Stanley brothers who had a high CBD strain, essentially it was was hemp is what it was, what they were growing. And they uh, uh, extracted a, uh, and basically it created a high CBD product that was hemp based. So let me turn, take a step back and explain the difference between hemp and marijuana. Yes, please. So um, by law, hemp and hemp-based products have to have less than 0.3% THC. Uh, And then by default, marijuana has more than 0.3% THC, okay? So essentially, it's the same plant, but there's a legal distinction between the two. Um, And this 0.3% THC is is arbitrary, pretty much. It was designated by some guy named um, Ernest, I think his name was Ernest Small, many, many years ago. So, so around that time, uh, around 2012, is when this documentary came out, and then they, they basically uh, capitalized on their 15, you know, 15 minutes of fame, and that's when the whole uh, hemp-based industry boomed. When you know, CBD products became popular from from there on out. So there was a point where then patients started coming to me uh, because they started purchasing C- uh, hemp-based CBD products online and started asking me questions about them, right? And um, at the end of the day, CBD is CBD. What matters is what strength you're getting, what strength your body's getting, and how much and in what frequency. So for a lot of conditions, what I was finding in clinical practice is that about 80% of conditions were well-treated with high amounts of CBD. It didn't matter whether it was hemp-based or marijuana-based. And so, so in that respect, I have been treating patients with CBD products since, since 2012. So you end up founding Doc Patel's, which is an online CBD store that's here. I guess I'm assuming this is like a big thing. It's curated by doctors. Can you expand on that a a little bit more? Like what made you decide to found Doc Patel's? Like, why did you feel like this space was important? And just to kind of give us a little bit more history on what Doc Patel's does now on that in that space. Sure. So it's an unregulated industry, right? So people don't know what they're what they're putting in their bodies. Um, there are products out there that have claimed to have a certain amount of CBD, but they actually in, in reality they have little to no CBD in them. There are products where they'll tell you the product has less than 0.3% THC, when in fact it has a lot more than that. There are products that have toxic levels of pesticides. There are products that have heavy metals, toxic levels of heavy metals like arsenic, cadmium, lead, or mercury. There are products that have microbial contaminants, right? Like E. coli, salmonella, and we've all heard of, heard of those outbreaks. Um, and then there are products that are made with unsafe solvents. 
like butane, what's in lighter fluid. Oh my gosh. Okay, what lights up your, your barbecue grill? Hexane, which is oftentimes used to make glue. So basically, the people who are, are behind uh, the, in this industry don't necessarily have a medical background. And it's an unregulated industry. And so people take shortcuts, right? Because they want to make money. And so I realized that what was going on was that patients were asking me for brand recommendations. And I didn't feel comfortable telling them what brand to use because I didn't know what happened behind the scenes. And then I would read these reports on like the FDA's website, you know, and, and other websites, legitimate websites that said that, oh yeah, by the way, this product has like no CBD in it, or this product has really, really high amounts of THC in it. So I didn't want to put my patients at, I didn't want to recommend a product that for one, you know, had little to no CBD in it. And then another, another product that could potentially get my patients high or, or another product that could like, you know, give them an E. coli or salmonella infections. I just, I could, there weren't any products that I could trust. So basically what I did was when I was on my own, prior to becoming CEO of Doc Patel's, I started my own, um, just a, just a, you can call it a, a, a beta of a CBD tincture. I worked with a grower in Colorado and went through the process of creating my own uh, CBD product. And by that time, by the time I launched it in 2018, Farm Bill had, had uh, passed. And I knew from my end that if I want to have the impact uh, that I want to have, I need to expand the product line, right? Because I need to have different strengths that, that people can have access to and different formulations that people can have access to. Plus, I need a team so that I can scale quickly and so I can grow quickly. Um, and at the same time, what was going on was that I had investors approaching me uh, to, be, to be a part of their uh, CBD products company. So it was a matter of finding the right investors who are on board with my vision. Uh, the, and the vision is, is, to, is to have trained and licensed healthcare professionals thoroughly vet these products for all the things that I told you about before, all the different factors. And at the same time, uh, put these products in the hands of trained and licensed healthcare professionals so that they, you know, not only are they recommending the product, but they but they're also walking their patients through how to use these products because that's a big missing piece of information. People are buying CBD products, but they have no clue how to use them. And so, and so I've done consults with people to walk them through how to use the products, you know, like to actually recommend products to them and walk them through how to use the products. And, and that's truly how you impact people's lives, right? Because what I found was going on in the industry is that people would buy a product from one brand, try it out, didn't work, or worse yet, they got side effects, and they would think it's a brand and move on to another brand. But that's not the case. If it's a solid quality product, and if you know how to use it, what I found in my experience when I recommended high CBD products that I trusted and then walked the patients through how to use them is that they would continue to use them for year over year over year because they were getting the results that they wanted on a consistent basis, you know? And when you have a problem like chronic pain, anxiety, insomnia, when you have a solution to that problem, you're not going to change that solution, right? Because it's, it's having such a significant impact on the quality of your life. So, so yeah, that's why I decided to, to do what I'm doing today. And I am currently in the process of recruiting physicians to work with us. Um, they can partner with us in several different ways, whichever, you know, they find of, of benefit to them. And then um, I'm, I'm training them. I educate them and then I um, uh, get together with them in a group and we walk through medical research. We walk through case studies. We walk through commonly asked questions as well. 
So, so that's the aim. What have you found to be some of the most common things? Like what are some, yeah, the most common things that CBD really seems to have an impact on and help with? Sure. So there's a list beginning with migraines and headaches, muscle pain. So we're talking about anything from like a twitch. Um, I've treated patients with chronic uh, hiccups, right? So they get a spasm of their diaphragm, which causes a lot of hiccups. I've treated that to patients who have like full body spasticity, like patients with multiple sclerosis, patients who have mild to moderate nerve pain, right? So oftentimes these are patients who have a history of diabetes and they'll complain of like pain in their, in their feet. You know, they'll have like numbness and tingling. Helps with that. Also helps with um, anxiety. And this is a fairly broad umbrella, right? So it covers things like Tourette's syndrome, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, generalized wow. anxiety, yeah, generalized anxiety disorder, panic disorder, amongst other conditions where the root cause is anxiety. Even children with autism, because a big component of that condition is anxiety. So I've helped uh, patients with autism as well. And interestingly enough, in that population, parents have found that it not only helps to calm and relax them, but because of that, it impacts their behavior, it impacts their communication, and it impacts um, their interactions socially as well, all for the better. What are a couple of things that people wouldn't think CBD could be used for that could actually work really well? Oh, that's a tough question. Because um, <laughs> uh, you're, you're, you're kind of switching what, what you typically think. Um, so I, I mentioned that the, what's known as the diaphragmatic spasm, the spasm of the diaphragm, which causes the hiccups, which not a lot of people have, but for the ones who do have it, it's hard to treat. Uh, a lot of these patients get put on all sorts of medications, all, anything from like sometimes pain medications to muscle relaxants to, I mean, gosh, I've even had patients put on um, sometimes like anti-anxiety medications and nothing would solve it. And then, you know, CBD products would help. Patients who have fibromyalgia, this, this patient population tends to be very resistant to conventional treatments, and they surprisingly do very well with CBD products. There's but probably most, an opportunity in almost everything, right? It's just figuring it out, I would imagine. No, there are conditions for which it, it's not effective, right? Okay, so I've had, I've had, yeah, I've had patients ask me, you know, is it going to treat my high blood pressure? It doesn't treat high blood pressure unless the high blood pressure is associated with high levels of anxiety. Um, it doesn't, I've had patients ask me if it treats high cholesterol levels, doesn't treat high cholesterol levels. I've had patients ask me, does it treat thyroid problems? Doesn't treat thyroid problems. Actually, I'm so glad you asked because somebody had asked me, I'd asked a couple of people and I should have did this a lot sooner than I did because I asked people if they had a question that they wanted to ask. And one of those questions was, does it help regulate thyroid function? It does not. And the reason I say this is just from a clinical standpoint. Typically, the patients who came to me came for chronic pain, anxiety, or insomnia. But they happened to have, you know, a thyroid problem for which they were typically on levothyroxine. So a lot of these patients had under-functioning thyroid, hypothyroidism. And so they were on levothyroxine. And so while they were on the course of the CBD products, they also were taking the levothyroxine and they were getting their thyroid levels monitored. 
and there was no change in their in their thyroid levels. The you know CBD products didn't make the thyroid levels worse, and the CBD products didn't improve the thyroid levels either. Whereby they would be able to wean off of the levothyroxine. So they had to continue to stay on the levothyroxine, continue to take the levothyroxine. So and there's some research uh, that's been done, very just preliminary research that showed that cannabinoids in general, like THC and CBD, don't have an impact on thyroid hormones. So I've been taking some CBD because I have fibroids and I have horrendous cycles. I swear I look like I am a on the surgical table table hemorrhaging every month. It's really, really bad. And and my cramps are they completely at least for one to two days, maybe sometimes even more, just knocks me out. I can't function. It's really, really bad. I've been trying the CBD product. How long does it normally take? Because I haven't been taking it consistently. I tried this last time. But when somebody is in, you know, is starting CBD for the first time, how long should they try the product? At what point should they feel like this is working, this isn't, maybe I need to see somebody to, to adjust what I'm doing? Because I don't know. I think what you're what you said is so key in regards to having somebody instruct yeah. on how to use it because I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just going by what the bottle says and I don't know if that's too much, too little. I, I have no idea. So how long should somebody kind of calculate or figure out if it's working or not? Yeah, so there's a couple components when it comes to using CBD products. So let me generally walk you through them, okay? Number one is that you have to pick the right strength. The most common formulation of CBD products that you'll find on the market are tinctures. They come in one ounce bottles, it's a liquid formulation. And the strength varies. It can vary anywhere from 250 milligrams in an ounce, all the way up to on the market, there's like 2,000 to 3,000 milligrams in an ounce. So that's a, a wide range. So that's step one is to pick the right strength. Second step is to take the right dose. So typically, based on medical history, I, I give people a baseline dose to start with, milligrams, and then how much to increase their dose by. And this is all done in the course of a day. And by the end of the day, they can figure out what dose they need to reduce their pain. And, and typically, if people are having pain anywhere from like a seven to nine, if you're taking the right strength and the right dose, it should bring your pain down to one to three. So if it's, if it's in very a day? Severe, in a day. Wow. In a day, if you're doing it right, okay? If you're not, then it's not going to work for you. So, so that's important. And yeah, this should be, you should see this, especially in the case of like pelvic pain from, um, from endometriosis, from you know, fibroids, uterine fibroids. It, yeah, you should see the effect within a day. And if, you're, if your pain is anywhere between a four to six, it'll typically bring it down close to zero. Maybe not completely a zero, but as close to, close to zero. So it typically goes from unbearable to manageable. But if you start with like even lower levels of pain, it can, there's potential to completely eliminate the pain with CBD products. So I have treated patients with uterine fibroids. Um, they do tend to typically have more pain around their cycle. And the way that they typically use CBD products is once they figure out the right dose, because they can uh, anticipate when their next cycle will be, they'll take it ahead of time so that they don't even have to experience, uh, it, it helps to reduce the, the frequency of the episodes of pain, the duration of the episodes of pain, and the severity of the episodes of pain. 
in a preventative way. So in certain conditions, you can use CBD products in a preventative way. The other thing is, is that, so strength, dose, and then finally frequency. So I've mentioned just one way in terms of frequency that I've had patients take it, right? So my patients with uh, urine fibroids, they, they don't necessarily have to take it on a regular basis. They just know when they're, uh, if they can anticipate when their cycle is going to be, they'll take it three to five days prior to their cycle, and then that's it. Then they'll use it prior to the next cycle. Um, so it's not a medication that has to be used on an everyday basis, mainly because the CBD gets stored in the fat cells in the body. So even on the days you're not taking this, there is some baseline level of the CBD being released from the fat cells as they're being burned, as they're being broken down. So it really depends on what you, like what ailment you're treating yeah. in regards to how you're doing it. Yeah. I, so just as an example, I've I had two patients with insomnia. So they were com otherwise completely healthy of similar body shape and size. So they had similar BMIs. They both had difficulty sleeping. Okay. So they, I recommended the same exact CBD product to them, walked them through a dosing process. The one patient only needed 0.5 milligrams of CBD to fall asleep. The other patient needed 50 milligrams of CBD to fall asleep. So do you see the difference? Yeah. And, and so it really, it really varies from individual to individual. That's why and, it's so important to have somebody walk you through it. Yeah, because you, you end up wasting a lot of time and money going through a trial and error process yourself. So there are people who DIY it, right? And kudos to them to, to, to do it. And I, if, if you're going to DIY it, I would say do it in a very methodical way. Keep track of the date. Well, first of all, know what strength of product you're using. Then write down the date, the amount that you took, and the effect that it had on you. Okay, so just keep a spreadsheet in Google, and you'll notice patterns with dosing as well. The other misconception is, is that you need to take a maximal dose. You don't. The goal is optimal dose, okay? Because what happens with cannabinoids in general, so chemicals like CBD, is that if you take too little, it's going to have no effect. But if you take too much, um, it can oftentimes even worsen pain. So it can have the opposite effect that you want it to have. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you want to take that, you want to be in, when it comes to dosing, you want to be in that sweet spot. Okay. Not too little, not too much, just like Goldilocks. And, and then it'll effectively help to, to treat, you know, whether you're, it's your, it's your pain your anxiety or insomnia. Where do you think some of the biggest opportunities for CBD, CBD are in the future? What, what do you see it going? Or is there something being worked on now that we're, that you we're know, not aware of? <laughs> There's always all sorts of formulations coming onto the market. Uh, you always have the basics, though. And basics include things like uh, sublinguals, so under-the-tongue formulations, oral formulations, the most common, most popular of which are gummies. Then you have uh, inhaled versions as well, like vaping CBD products. And then, believe it or not, there's also rectal and vaginal formulations as well. So there's always newer and newer products coming onto the market, but what I've noticed is that it's always the core products that um, tend to be most utilized by people. I don't know. I, 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 I've, seen, I've seen products, you know, come and go, but the core products have always kind of stuck around. Is there anything else that you wanted, before we get into the questions that I ask everybody, yeah. um, is there anything else that you, that maybe I haven't touched on that you would love to make sure that people are aware of? I think if people have questions, especially medical questions about CBD, um, I have plenty of resources. They can just head on over to my website, docpatels.com. I'm always answering commonly asked questions, so they can always post their questions on any one of our social media channels, and I will gather them and, and answer those questions. Um, and then if they want 
more of a customized and, and tailored uh, regimen on using CBD products for whatever ailment they're dealing with, then they can always book a consult through uh, with me through our website. And I'll make sure to include all of the social handles. They'll be at the end of this podcast as well as on the show notes. So thank you very much, Dr. Tal. Are you ready for like some of the other questions that I get to ask everybody? Yes, I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> what do you wish you would have known when you started out in this CBD journey? Um, so it's interesting when it comes to journeys, um, it's always 2020 in hindsight. And a lot of the adventure comes from, you know, a lot of adventure comes from, uh, uh, you don't know what you don't know. And, and that's part of the adventure. So really nothing, you know, it's always a learning opportunity. And I think I'm just open to, to what more I have to learn. What are you curious about right now? Oh gosh, you know, I've really been focusing a lot on growth mindset. How can I take the thoughts that, you know, run through my mind, that the monkey mind, and them and, and, and change them into more productive thoughts? So that's what I'm working on right now. I think we all need to be working on that. <laughs> what is something that obviously failure is just another opportunity for growth? But what would you say something that you've failed at that has given you that opportunity has been? Gosh, what have I not failed at? So let's see, my most recent failure was I created a course on all my different protocols, like how to use uh, CBD products for back pain, how to use CBD products for fibromyalgia. I put them out and... Uh, there weren't a lot of takers for that course. And I think I realized that, you know, the way that I was, this, it, it, it just wasn't a good fit with the product that I was presenting and the market. So that was a learning opportunity. What is a dream that scares you? A dream that scares me, you know, living my life. I want to leave a legacy that lives beyond even me. So that's what scares me is that I'm putting in, a, in all this work and at the end of the day, when I'm on my deathbed, uh, something, something better come out of all this work. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will. What, uh, now these are like the easy peasy questions. What is your favorite word? Uh, favorite word? Gosh, I don't know. Uh, I swear a lot. I'm a Jersey girl. I swear like a sailor. <laughs> You're like anything where I can, where I feel like I'm getting it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, just let it all out. Let it all out. <laughs> okay, so this is actually a two-parter question because since you're from Jersey City, New Jersey, but you live now in... Uh, and I live in the Chicagoland area, yeah. Okay, so if I decide I'm going to Jersey City, where am I going to eat and what am I eating and... Because I will be back in Chicago. I don't know if I'll ever visit Jersey City, to be honest. But I will be back in Chicago sometime. And then the same question. If I'm in the Chicago area, where do I, what do I need to eat? And uh, where am I eating in the back? Okay. So if you're going to go to Jersey City, New Jersey, you have to go to Boulevard Drinks. It is this establishment that's been there for years. And they have the best hot dogs. I'm not... I'm not a proponent of processed foods. But you have to make this exception. It, they're just so good. They're better, better than, than Portillo's. 
Well, I grew up with like uh, the Boulevard Drinks hot dogs and the Nathan's Coney Island hot dogs too. Oh, okay. Yeah. You kind of got the best over there. Yeah, yeah. So, so that. And then, you know what? Honestly, I haven't really gone out much in the Chicagoland area. Okay, so I developed, I honestly live off of protein shakes. <laughs> I would say go to Costco and pick yourself up some premier protein shakes because those are so good. So you can do that anywhere. I know. I know you can. I love, no, but it's cool. Like now I could go because I've been looking for a new one anyways. Yeah, those are good. The chocolate ones are the best. I don't know well, about see, the I, vanilla. Okay. See, I don't have to be vanilla. I don't like chocolate. I'm a weirdo. I know. Really? Okay. Okay. So final question, because we have to bookend it with the wines. What is your favorite type of wine, red, white, or rosé? And do you have a particular brand that you love? Okay. So the best wine that I've had was ice wine when I went to Canada. Um, I don't know if you've ever had ice wine, but the way it's made is that uh, they don't like the grapes I don't know what the word is. So like they fully harvest. Yes, yeah. So they they pick them up when they're when their the sugar content is high, and they pick them frozen and they process them frozen. And so it's this really sweet wine. It's almost like you're drinking honey. Uh, so you don't want to have a lot of it, lots of yeah. sugar. But they also serve it very like chilled as well. And so um, it was a very amazing experience. Well, in and of itself, to to go into that that winery. Number one. But number two, just how this very interesting uh, wine is made. So uh, that's, that's the best wine I've had. Nice. Well, Dr. Patel, I am so happy that we were able to have this conversation today. There was so much information that you've shared, and it's so appreciated because I know this is still a topic that's continually evolving. And you have, you know, I know somebody who who works in it on this from the sales side, but to have somebody from the truly medical side who's done a lot of work is really kind of eye opening. And I will make sure to include all of this information for everybody in the show notes. And at the end, we'll make sure to include all of your website, social, everything so people can engage with you. So until next time, mi gente. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Wine and Cheese Myth Podcast. As always, you can find resources to the discussion, including the link to Doc Patel's in the show notes. And don't forget to use the code Wine and Cheese for an extra 5% discount. Do you have a story that needs to be told or know someone who does? Then please reach out to me on my website or our social media channels. You can reach me on Instagram at the Wine and Cheese Facebook and LinkedIn at the Wine and Cheese Podcast. You can also reach me directly on our website, which is thewineandcheesemitpodcast.com because I want to hear your story. Remember, if you want to hear more Wine and Cheesemit, please subscribe, rate, and review. Five-star ratings are always appreciated, and those positive reviews are appreciated even more. Until next time, mi gente, saludos!